Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And uh, Victor, our conversation today is inspired by a recent National Review column that you wrote, which was called Our Neutron Bomb Election. And, and the overarching thesis of this was kind of that once this is all over, the American political landscape is going to see a lot of its core institutions really eroded, at least in terms of public attitudes towards them. And I want you to start us today where this column starts, which is with a just blistering takedown of uh, I guess what we could call elite culture. There, there's been this raging debate throughout this cycle as to who is and isn't an elite and you and I have talked before on the show about the beliefs that characterize them. But what you're examined in this piece was really sort of more their sociology and the sort of incestuous nature of this particular social stratum. So why don't you start there by just telling our listeners why you really consider these elites sort of a class set apart. Well, they, there's a lot of ways, as you said, uh, Troy, to define them, but you can do it by locale. They tend to be congregated on the two coastal corridors, but most importantly, between Boston, New York, and Washington. They are branded, uh, doesn't mean they're educated, but they're branded with a suitable university pedigree, Wellesley, Georgetown, Ivy League. They tend to... Uh, either be related to each other like the Podesta brothers, one's a lobbyist, one's Hillary's campaign flack, um, or they intermarry. Uh, or they, in the case of going back a step, the Ben Rhodes is the national security strategist for Obama, whatever, or communications of national strategy, whatever his title is. Uh, he's the brother of the president of CBS News. We just learned that after I wrote that column, that Chuck Todd, the host of Meet the Press, who's been interviewing, I think, 20 times Bernie Sanders, never told anybody that his own wife had made about $2 million in consulting fees by working for Bernie Sanders. And it kind of goes on and on with these people. Uh, residence, education, matrimony, blood kin, they tend to be mostly progressive, and they don't understand much of what transpires outside their bubble and they've been totally discredited because they they did not see the um, they did not see the either the Sanders or the Trump phenomenon and they didn't understand the implications of the Clinton Foundation and they're they're ex basically exempt or immune from self -critic criticism and outside audits so they're they've run amok in this election whether it's the DNC leaks or the Podesta Trove has given us a glimpse into how they think and work, and I think everybody's shocked that they're much more corrupt than we ever imagined. Just to sort of underscore the case that you're making here, could you contrast for us your lifestyle with some of the people you're talking about here? Because I, I think there's sometimes an assumption that anyone with the sort of notoriety that you have through your writing can basically stock the corridors of power at will, but you've affirmatively chosen not to take that tack. Well, I I don't think I think there's a lot of us, but in my case, if I get people who call and they do from one of the particular campaigns on the conservative side, I'm happy to talk to them and give my views. But 
I don't send them emails about speeches. I don't write. I don't endorse. I don't sign petitions. Just because I'm a syndicated columnist and I work for National Review and opinion journalism, and I don't think that you should involve yourself in a campaign when you're commenting on it. I think some that hurts some of my colleagues at National Review. Um, and I, I'm obviously not married to anybody who's in politics. I live 3,000 miles um, from Washington. I don't like to go to New York. Uh, I work at the Hoover Institution. That's sort of a establishment think tank, but I, I think I'm kind of an odd man out there because I choose to live on a farm in the middle of nowhere. So uh, I don't really fit that. And so I, I have the ability to critique it. And then because I work in Palo Alto during the week and I, I'm here in the south of Fresno during the weekend, I can see that the Trump base versus the anti-Trump elite and there's no communication at all. And I will say that I feel more at home with the people I grew up with that are more likely to vote for Trump than I are than I am for a lot of people in that corridor who are never Trump people. That doesn't mean that I endorse Trump, but uh, I don't think this elite has a clue of what's going on in the Republican Party. I really don't. I, I want us to walk through now some of the other institutions that you talk about in this piece as being discredited, one of which you mentioned is um, presidential foundations thanks to the mounting evidence as to how the, how the Clinton yeah. business. I, um, here's what I want to do. I actually want to call a little bit on your background as a classicist here. You go in the space of – in America of about 250 years from George Washington who took Cincinnatus as his exemplar of how a leader should regard the exercise of political power to people like the Clintons. What happens in the interim? Because it seems like something about us, about the American people had to change in order for that to happen. Well, I think one of the things, we became much more affluent and we became much more urban. Washington envisioned, as Jefferson did, a country where 90 percent of the people were independent homesteaders and the cities were very small. Now we have so many people in the two coastal corridors, the Great Lakes, the Atlanta region. Um, and they're mutually dependent upon one another. Uh, they don't really understand the nat natural world outside the city limits. They have contempt uh, for people who engage in muscular or must engage in muscular labor. The, the closest they get to the outdoors is sort of reality TV, ice truckers or Alaska wilderness or Duck Dynasty, where they sort of romanticize these buffoonish people that they think are not with it. So that's, that explains a lot of this group thing. People, um, they want to be alike. They want to get along. They want to be – they don't have a sense of self, of self-reliance. They don't have any sense that they can get up in the morning and chainsaw, cut a tree down or mow their lawn or do physical – get a sense of physical accomplishment. I think that's that's really bad. And uh, I know that when I – yesterday I had to write two columns, but then I took a break – I did a little chainsawing and mowed the lawn the day before I, ran, I went up to the Sierra and got on the roof and worked on this house. And for me, I, I can't think of I, I could I couldn't write without doing that. And when people call me and they say, I don't answer the phone sometimes, but I think if I were to be in Washington and I was having coffee 
or dinner or lunch with people in all these different opinion magazines and newspapers and radio and TV and consulting. And I was married to a power and I was a power. I don't think I don't, I just couldn't imagine how I could look objectively on the, at the world. I just don't think it'd be possible. Yeah. And on, on the topic of the media, there are, um, two areas that you cite in this piece. The first is fact-checking. The second is debate moderators, yeah. where you say they've both essentially been discredited by this election. Play, I think play that so. argument out for us. Well, I mean, politifact fact or whatever the particular checkers are, they made a classical error in thinking that uh, because they were checking the facts, like a copy editor checks your text, therefore the mistakes that they think they found are mistakes and the people who committed them really did commit them and where it's just a matter of opinion. And the degree of fact-checking depends on the integrity of the fact-checker, just like the skill of a copy editor. But when I turn in a manuscript and the copy editor wants to make changes, some are very good, but some are terrible. And the same thing is true of fact-checking, and especially now that the fact-checkers tend to overlook mist- uh, inaccuracies on the left, or they contextualize them, or they use the adjective, uh, the adverb mostly, mostly true, mostly false, and they don't apply the same standard. And, and the uh, caricature of that was when Hillary Clinton ended the debate by asking everybody to go to her website so where she, they could fact-check Trump's statements. Meanwhile, she said things that were just patently untrue, such as that she wasn't Secretary of State when Obama issued the red line, which she was and which was not fact-checked, or when it was fact-checked, it was contextualized. As far as the debate moderators, I think everybody understood that Chris Wallace was a far better debate. I think he's probably a Democrat that works for Fox News. He's a moderate. Lester Holt and the others are just, their purpose was to, self-appointed task was to try to explain to Americans that they should not vote for Donald Trump. That's basically what a debate monitor is. At the worst, we see something like Donald Brazil where she she's caught uh, passing on a question that's going to be asked at a debate so she has an advantage over Bernie Sanders. And then she brags to Podesta that this happens to her a lot. Questions come come her way a lot. And you get the impression that's sort of a... A, a usual habit, and then when we collate Candy Crawley in the second uh, 2012 debate, where she sort of fact-checked Mitt Romney and did so in error, I don't think anybody believes that these debate moderators are independent, disinterested arbiters at all. They should be eliminated, and they let you, some guy with a clock should just sit there and, and say, "Go to it," and then. Take a break like a prize fight. Take two minutes. Go to it. It would be just as effective without the uh, the opinion journalism injected under the guise of being disinterested. Uh, Victor, for, for people – you may have anticipated this a little bit in the, the end of that last question. But for people who are unhappy with the media status quo, there tends to be I think sort of a 7-10 split between their prescriptions. There's one camp – that is sort of suffused with the J school idealism and they pine for this sort of just the facts, ma'am, objectivity. And then there's another who says, you know what, just give us the model of, of early America where we have an explicitly partisan press and nobody even has a pretense of objectivity. Do, do either one of those uh, appeal to you? Well, I, I don't think – I think that it was always biased when I was growing up. There were three networks and Walter – Cronkite and John Chancellor 
And the rest of them were all left-wing and liberal and nice guys, but they were not disinterested. Everybody just accepted. So when we go back and say, let's go back to the old Cronkite model. Well, Cronkite went to Vietnam and declared the Tet Offensive a defeat, which it wasn't, and said that we couldn't win, which was not true, and pretty much turned off support for what was uh, could have been a salvage Vietnam. So they were never disinterested. So I'm pretty much um, let no rules in the arena just go to it and drop the pretense because the journalism schools that the little what i know of them are true of the english department or the philosophy department where they're primarily left-wing and then they they think they're edward r murrow or somebody but they're not they're trained to basically they they go into that graduate program and they leave with the idea that most americans are clueless they're dupes and it's the task of 20 percent of the progressive elite to inform them as subtly as possible. And now we're talking about opinion journalism. We're not talking about AP or Reuters or McClatchy. But that's where a lot of the bias is, is a so-called you know, objective news gathering that comes across the news wires as a neutral story. But boy, if you look at those outlets or you look at Google News or Yahoo News, I mean, they, they run as headlines things right out of the Huffington Post. And so... The whole thing is corrupt, and it explains why 20 or 25% of the people self-identify as liberal, but yet liberal and progressive candidates do very well, given their numbers, because of the foundations, the universities, the media, the federal bureaucracies, etc. And it's a very brilliant way of nullifying uh, minority support. I mean, minority in the sense that most people do not agree with their agenda, and yet they they're much more influential than the conservatives because they can trump numbers. Okay. So let me turn here as we reach the end to probably the institution that's obviously going to be reeling the most after this election and that seems like it's going to be the Republican Party. How does to, – to, to ask you a very large question, Victor. How does the GOP pick up the pieces after this? How should they do it? Well, that's a tough question. I, I do – I will say that uh, there are some Trump uh, – br- braggarts that are saying we took the party, but they're pretty much outliers. More common is something like James Kirchick or uh, Robert Kagan or John Podhorowitz saying, you know, you have to you have to crawl back to us. You need, need to say you're sorry. You're, an in a, you're the 25 worst people. And that's a mistake to do that because – uh, Donald Trump is just a name. He he just fills a void that was created by the Republican establishment. When you have the voice of Atslan and the Wall Street Journal have the same approach to um, immigration, which is open borders, basically. It was the Wall Street Journal's position for years. And when you have people who have no idea the uh, effect of so-called fair tra- uh, free trade on communities, agriculture, manufacturing, and when people in the Republican establishment really don't understand the Second Amendment or why we have one, um, then you've got this gulf. And then when you add insult to entry, and these people ran the Republican Party, they had all these candidates that they approved of had the advantages in money, uh, press, Jeb Bush, and then Marco Rubio, all good candidates. I, I liked them all, but they had the advantages. Then this guy comes in and 
this weird Trump comes in and he hijacks the entire primaries. He steals a nomination, they think. He gets more votes than anybody. And rather than in sort of a, you know, a uh, reasonable position, say, whatever this was, I'm a Republican and we've got to work to improve this candidate. They said, never. He's not of my class. He's not of my temperament. He's an embarrassment. Socially, career-wise, I will suffer if I put my imprimatur on him. And the people who are for him are Trumpsters. They're uneducated. I just listened to Judith Miller today, and it was just incredible to listen to her. Uneducated white people are for Trump. Sophisticated people, he's, she, he's you know... He's losing sophisticated independents and college-educated women. I'm thinking, wait a minute. He, these people are sophisticated, and they're going to vote for an enabler of a sexual predator like Bill Clinton, who's a complete crook. And so they don't get it. And I don't see, until they get it, I don't see how there can be reconciliation. I, have, For my own part, I have a kind of a golden rule, and that is I try not to mention people in a negative light. Uh, in the Never Trump School, unless they've attacked me first, and then I might reply. <laughs> but I don't try to pick fights because I understand their position. I can understand how Trump repels people. I understand their situation career-wise. But I don't think that's – if I read what Jonah Goldberg or Bill Crystal or George Will write, they they write about Mike Pence or, they, or David French or whoever the particular writer is. I've, I read what they write. They really take on people that were willing to vote for Trump, and they say really harsh things about him. And I guess they don't want a reconciliation. So I, I think that that's the answer. Everybody's going to have to cool down. And this is if Trump loses, of course. If he wins, right. the whole everything's off. I mean, everything I just said doesn't matter because right. he doesn't need anybody. He, he's just said to the Republican people, you – all of you writers, you intellectuals, you congressional leaders, you all hate my guts, the Bush family, uh, National Review, Weekly. I don't need you, and you have no power. So I'm going to get an agenda, and the Republicans that want to work with me are going to join me, and we don't really care what you say. That, that's what the future is if he's successful. And I think so, that scares the Republican establishment. If you, if we could ask them privately, off the record, promise not to tell anybody, I think they would prefer Hillary to win, not because they like her agenda, just because uh, at least they would be noble op opposers. They would be the noble opposition. But my gosh, if Trump wins, they're irrelevant. So let me end with this question. It, it's inherently speculative, so I'm just asking for sort of a best guess. What – what has this election cycle represented for the U.S.? Is this is this decline or is this creative destruction? In, in other words, are we just kind of in a free fall or um, – I'm going to totally mix the metaphor here. Has this been brush clearing that needed to happen to sort of long-term get the country back yeah. on track? I think it, you needed it to happen. I, I Everybody wishes that Trump had been a more presentable – reformer. He's not a reformer. He's just a force of nature. He's like a hurricane that came in and destroyed things. But that destruction needed to happen because it was, as we see from all of these WikiLeaks, this whole culture was utterly corrupt. And when we look at the Republican Party and what how they function, they were part of the same problem. They had the same value system as what we... I'm sure if we could hack a Republican 
RNC grandee or was a campaign manager for one of these big campaigns and read their emails and we could detect uh, their value system. It would be pretty much like Colin Powell's, who is a Republican. And when we read his hacked emails, we hear about he's mad at Hillary because he doesn't get he doesn't get as many uh, speaking gigs. He's name drops the Bohemian Grove. He name drops the Hamptons. He doesn't talk about much of anything. He talks about, uses a foul word about Bill Clinton's sex acts. So I think that the Republicans are just lucky they didn't get get uh, hacked. And maybe they did get hacked and we'll learn later. So I think it was necessary and it's going to remind people that you're not the norm in Washington and New York. You're not what we are proud of. You're, you're the exception and we don't like you. And we want to get rid of you, and you better understand we have contempt for you. And I do myself. When somebody calls me from Politico or one of these, I don't like to talk to them anymore. I just say I'm not going to talk to you because I just feel that they're corrupt, and whatever you say they're going to manipulate or they want you to do some self-serving. I'm at the Hoover Institution, but I'm kind of moderate, and then they're going to twist that. And I, I don't trust any of them. And I think a lot of people are that way now, too. And I don't even trust some of the Republicans, too, the establishment. And this is from somebody who didn't like Trump. But I do appreciate that he threw a ball through this screen and shattered it. And I hope that more responsible people than Trump will then put it back together in a different and more ethical manner. But uh, I guess I should end by saying if i wanted to and i wouldn't i don't want to but i could write a long essay and i could have a, a bar graph or a connect the dot graph where i would show 20 republican opinion journalists um, inside politicians their spouses media people and they're all be interconnected all of them uh, working on campaigns, writing opinion journalists, spouse working, consulting, head of a founder, all that stuff. And it's not right. It, it's just it's just a bubble, and it ethically com compromises them. So I wish that a guy like Chuck Todd, who's interviewing Bernie Sanders, why his wife's making a lot of money off Bernie Sanders, was the exception. But I think that the Republican counterparts are just as blatant, unfortunately. All right. That's all the time that we have for today. Join us next time for the next installment of the Classes Podcast. And in the meantime, stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. Okay. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.